maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ali is here to help. Ali invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today we're continuing our discussion with world and religious leaders who gathered in London in 2012 for an Intelligence Squared event in collaboration with the Elders Organization. Joining broadcaster Jon Snow on stage were former US President Jimmy Carter, Mary Robinson, the first female president of Ireland and former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the South African religious leader and activist. The second part of this wide-ranging discussion sees the distinguished panel reflecting on topics such as the ethics of drone warfare, human rights in the digital age, and the future of NATO. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversations, head over to intelligencesquared.com membership or subscribe to our channel on Apple. Now let's jump back into the conversation. We return with Mary Robinson commenting on reproductive rights for women and how that plays into issues of global sustainability. But I think what a number of us found very worrying in Rio, including Gru and myself, was the fact that in a discussion about sustainable development, the initial text had rightly emphasis on the importance of reproductive health and rights, and rights was removed, which um, was backsliding on both the Cairo conference in 1994 and the Beijing um, conference on Could you detect the origin of the removal? Yes, there were a few countries, Costa Rica. um, The European Union didn't come out very strongly, particularly because of Malta. Um, Nobody... Understood. Malta wagged Europe's tail? Malta wagged Europe's tail on, on this issue. And I think there were probably a few other countries that weren't pushing it either. But the, the point really is that um, for women's groups who've been following this, and language matters very much in this context, it was a step back. Rio was a step back 
on the World Conference against women, uh, uh, for Women in, in Beijing. Um, I, before we open it up to the audience, which we're going to do momentarily, as I think would be said in, in your country, um, <laughs> before we open it up momentarily to the audience, um, I, I want to come to, to one last um, and, and I would have thought very present issue, and that is the technolo- technology is technology and war, and the extent to which the human is being removed from the battlefield to originate assassination and killing from a very distant place on a computer screen. Is there anything morally, do you think, different between presence on the battlefield and pushing a button um, 5,000 miles away in the sanctity of, of some northern state? Morally. Not for me. It's all war. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think uh, to use technology in the fashion that they do... Uh, and, Dr- drones and, don't worry you. I'm absolutely appalled, you know, uh, that, that uh, we, 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 we're so casual. It, I mean, when you think, I mean, that they, they, they can pinpoint and, and assassinate someone... And sometimes it's innocent children, women, old people who become the victims of this. And, and it, I mean, sort of clinically, for me, it's actually worse. I mean, it makes it, makes it worse that we can, we can use an extraordinary gift that God has given us of intelligence for this when we, we could be wanting to use it for things like helping to produce food, helping people to have clean water. Or using the same technology to bombard a cancerous cell. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. President Carter. Well, I think it, when you depersonalize war on uh, one side of the battle, for instance, if a major country can destroy another region from 30,000 feet bombing, where there's no uh, involvement personally of the nation itself or even the pilot other than releasing the bombs with no danger to himself, then the only people who suffer are the ones who are the recipients of the attack. <clears throat> and the same thing happens when you, by remote control, kill people uh, with a... Uh, with a drone. So I think that uh, the major deterrent to war in the past has been that both sides suffer. Mm. So that if somebody's going to attack others, they realize I might be involved myself, I might have my own child killed. And when when you move that deterrent, you you not only depersonalize the combat and remove a deterrent to it, but, but you also reduce the recipients of the attack to subhumanity uh, as though they are not equal to you in the eyes of God, in the eyes of human beings, in the eyes of the international community. So I think that it's a very serious uh, step that we have taken from massive aerial bombing all the way through to uh, the drone attack. As you're the only American president in the last 50 years not to have fired a shot in anger, in the course of his presidency, or not had his country fire a short shot of anger, it's no good my asking you whether as president you would have ever used a drone. 
that's a hard thing to answer, but my, my external opinion of what I would have done is <laughs> that I would not. I would not. But your internal opinion is? Well, you know, I, I don't know what circumstances would have happened when I was president. That's hard to say. But, uh, but we worship the Prince of Peace. And I think one of the major elements of uh, human life should be to do everything you can to promote peace and deter war. So I think yeah. human rights and peace cover the basic thrust of what the elders are about. And I don't think in any of our discussions in the last five years, we have ever departed from that basic principle that the elders, no matter what else happens, in every way we can, sometimes very minimal ways, sometimes a maximum influence, we're going to promote peace and we're going to promote human rights. Of course, that is a fundamental advantage when you land at, uh, uh, in, in Sudan, uh, in Khartoum. Yes. The one thing they can be absolutely certain of is, A, you won't be carrying a Kalashnikov, uh, and B, uh, you won't have access to a nuclear bomb. That's correct. Mm. Or any form of weapon. And you know, the, I think the entire concept of human rights includes yeah. peace, justice, mm. and so forth. Mary? There's no doubt about that. Yes, I agree very much with that. In fact, I was very glad that one of the first initiatives of the elders was during the um, 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration. We had a whole year of encouraging uh, the marking of um, that Universal Declaration with a whole lot of organizations, Amnesty, etc., um, on in uh, Every Human Has Rights. But the point that you triggered in my mind is I remember as High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, I was very concerned about the refugees from Kosovo. <laughs> And with a number of my colleagues, I was visiting. And then I went into Serbia. I didn't meet Milosevic. He refused to meet me. I met the foreign minister. And then we were taken under escort of the Serbian authorities to the town of Niš because the mayor of that town had been very much a human rights person. We wanted to get more information from him. And um, we were building a case for the International Criminal Court. And we were stopped because there was bombing ahead of us. And I thought, oh, we'll have to go all the way back to Belgrade now. And they said, no, no, come quickly. And we came to a poor housing estate on the outskirts of Niche where there had been bombing by NATO. And there were cluster bombs on all kinds of levels that children would have been playing. And, and there were a few people were injured. I don't think anybody was killed. And I reported on that and, and criticized NATO. And I got heavily censored. You know, the idea of an official of the United Nations criticizing NATO. And yet... I saw with my yes. own eyes. And, yeah. you know, women, are not, women and children are not collateral damage. I think now with drones and with the technology, as you said, it's, it's more worrying. And it's more worrying in lots of other ways too, invasion of privacy, um, the use of you know, uh, internet. Um, we are actually, as elders, taking it upon ourselves um, to look at um, the internet and, and privacy issues and human rights. And um, we're not going to be the technical experts. But we are going to keep reminding our world that we do have common values of human rights and of commitment to peace. Well, at that point, I, we're going to throw up some light uh, because there are some microphones up in the gods, uh, up here and down here somewhere. Tell us who you are and off we go. Uh, good evening. Um, I'm very pleased to be here and want to say hello to Mary Robinson, um, who I used to work for briefly. Um, hearing you speak about a range of issues... I'm curious if, as the elders, you see common barriers to progress among the different issues, whether it be peace, whether it be sustainable development. Um, for example, I heard Joe Stiglitz the other night talking about how our cognitive frameworks aren't changing fast enough to help us address these issues. So I wanted to ask your opinions. Thank you. Mary, she's yours. You start. 
they, they call uh, I didn't arrange this. <laughs> um, uh, I think what, what, what the question was whether there are common threads of common barriers in the various issues that we address, and whether, yeah. you know, and in a way, um, I think um, we're in a period of change that we don't fully appreciate. Um, political change, the power in our world is, is, is changing with the emerging economies and the... And, and, and the, and the uh, shifts that are taking place, um, we have this urgent need to safeguard our world by having sustainable development and by caring enough about the uh, global warming that could destroy um, our whole um, um, ecosystem of the world. Um, we have a financial system that's broken and is causing huge um, issues of divisiveness, and we certainly don't have the leadership at the moment on those at the political level. In fact, we, we, we seem to have less leadership. It's almost, I think it's, issues have become very complicated. Mm-hmm. And political leaders are only looking six months ahead or four or five years ahead. And many of the things we need to talk about are intergenerational. We need um, the kind of reform, the more egalitarian society. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, to me is essential. And really addressing poverty. And, 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 I think um, it would be right to say that there's nobody who comes from any country assembled in this room who wouldn't agree with that. Mm. I mean, that mm. besets mm. all of us mm. in every developed country. Mm. I'm less aware mm. of the South, but mm. that rings real, real bells. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Let's take as many questions as we can in the tie at the top there. 
Nick Kenyon. It's Sir um, Nicholas Kenyon who runs this place. Here, here we are in an art centre. In terms of what you were saying about the search for peace, do you see a role for the arts in releasing creativity and actually helping conflict resolution? And the last one up here. I had a question for President Carter, which was, did you find you had more impact and power when you were in presidency or now as part of the elders, and why? (laughs) (laughs) It's such a good question, we'll get it out now. (laughs) Did you have more impact and power as a president or now? I really had more impact and power as president. Uh, Although it was not nearly as enjoyable. (laughs) And the the best part of my life has been the last 30 years, particularly since I've been involved with the elders, because I've worked with other people, and we are more directly involved with individual people who are suffering in the world. But I, I would never have been able to bring about a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt as an elder. But I could use the full power and political influence of my own country to help the t- to force the two leaders to come together. And that treaty has lasted now for almost 35 years. So there are a few things I could have done uh, as president, like normalized relations with China that I couldn't do as president. But I think that uh, that's a very good question. And uh, as far as power is concerned, uh, president would be more effective. As far as influence is concerned, I think the collective elders can be more of an influence for peace and human rights than I could be as president. Can you see a role um, for the arts in conflict resolution? Do you, do you, can you see them playing a, a role that in some way opens opportunities? Speaking uh, from my own experience uh, at home, I mean, when we were struggling against apartheid, oh, absolutely, certainly. I mean, the, the, the arts were, were quite critical. Uh, I mean, you had people who, who, who could, who could criticise uh, the apartheid system quite transiently, uh, but because they were on the stage, and, and the South African government was trying to make out that they were Western, um, that kind of criticism was something that could happen, and and I mean, we were particularly. Uh, energized by song Mm. Um, Mm. as well. I mean, you know, that uh, singing uh, when you were hurting, uh, say at funerals, um, and and when you were celebrating. Mm. uh, And I, I think, I mean, yeah. Uh, what, about, what about um, Baron Boehm's uh, Palestinian-Israeli yes, yes, orchestra? Mm, the East-West Levant, mm, or it's yeah. called. Mm, Probably mm. had it playing here, mm. Nick, mm. without a doubt. The other thing would be when you stop people going to places that are troublesome. By what means? Did, did you... <laughs> I'm speaking English. (laughs) (laughs) Are you talking about sporting sporting fixtures? Yes. uh, No, no. Sporting um, fixtures. No, 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 no. No. Boycotts. Boycotts, Mm. yes. Yes, I mean, it's it's quite important when you have people who are celebrities in in the arts Mm. saying, no, we're not going to go 
to South Africa. We're not going to go over there. And that's, that's, it seems a negative, but it isn't. I mean, people feel those things often more sharply. Ma'am. Um, as the women's rights advocate for Human Rights Watch, I definitely need your advice. Um, what do we do when an issue that we know is crucial to women's rights, to women's dignity, to the future of the planet, such as reproductive health, is so stuck that we cannot move forward? How do you think we can push such an issue forward? What are some of the foolproof methods um, that you know exist that we can use for this kind of issue? Uh, I think it's important that this issue is seen as mainstream to development. Um, and that's a message that we tried to uh, put across both Gru Brundtland and myself very strongly in Rio. I also happen to chair a global leaders council on reproductive health, which includes um, uh, um, Fernando Enrico Cardozo and also Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the president of Liberia, and Joyce Banda, the, the president of Malawi, and a number of others um, who um, see the, the need to to sort of champion it visibly and, and um, with conviction in order that it isn't a taboo subject or a stigmatized subject. But um, the most important thing, I think, is to keep affirming the central role of sexual and reproductive health um, in, for girls, for women, and that also it's, it's relevant to an issue that now comes up more and more. I have a foundation on climate justice. I talk a lot about it, and I get the question, what about population control? And I have to answer as gently as I can and say that's an important issue but the wrong question. It's not what, is what about population control. We know what to do and it doesn't come from the outside as a kind of control. It's educating of girls and women, having health systems that bring down maternal and child deaths and having reproductive health as part of the um, education of girls and women and of men and boys for that matter. I wanted to talk about women. You want to talk about women. <laughs> Uh, it all—it seems a little facetious, but it isn't. I am actually quite serious. Uh, when I—I I, I mean, my own particular theory is most women would be people who bring to life and nurture and that when they are truly feminine they are, they are hardly likely to be warmongers that a, a woman who's carried a, a baby for nine months in a womb is not likely to want to see the child being cannon fodder and quite seriously, I have suggested that we did, in fact, want a revolution that women ought to be saying to us men, we, we have allowed you. The world is in a mess. Just get out of the way. And, <laughs> Uh, uh, unfortunately, people think, I mean, that one is not being, being serious. But when you think, how did peace come in Liberia? Peace came because women of the 
different faiths came together and said, we are going to pray the devil back to hell. And it was largely because of the role that women played that uh, peace came. I'm going to shut up. No, I, it's a good thought to leave ringing in our ears. I'm going the to leave The Liberian experience yes, is yes, a good thing to yes, leave in our ears for this moment. Yes, I, I'm going to, to I'm, you, I want I'm, to move I'm, you on I'm to sure. one more thing. Yes, all right. And that is yes. the very good question about Sri Lanka hmm. and human rights and how... Uh, people are allowed to say, well, it's just a, a Western sort of uh, well, infliction. Yeah, in fairness, um, you know, the Human Rights Council did pass that important resolution about Sri Lanka, and the elders were very strongly um, supportive, and we had a, an op-ed about it, and it, it was very important. Now we, we have to follow up on that, and um, the um, Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights must um, you know, address the way in which Sri Lanka responds to that resolution and so there is a um, it's not the strongest process but there is a process there um, which is important. There's also the Universal Periodic Review which Sri Lanka will come um, before the council for um, this year and um, I think it's, it, it's on the record and it has been a very important statement by the Human Rights Council that um, uh, you know, is at least saying um, Sri Lanka must have the must implement their own report and, and must go further and must must have uh, bring to, uh, prosecute those who have been responsible for the worst um, cases and they have been terrible cases um, of violations of human rights of the civilian population. Right. Let's take uh, everybody's at the microphone. I'll take you two first. Yeah. Hi. My question would be for President Carter. Um, you have um, underlined the sacrosanctity of uh, the elections and how we should, in fact, in, in, in the case of Egypt, and how we should, in fact, not only acknowledge it, but, but support it very rightfully. And my question is, how would you reconcile this concept, very important pillar uh, concept, with the results in Aceh, which you, I'm sure you're familiar, is this region in Indonesia, uh, where through democratically elected uh, government, and one that has been actually re-elected a couple of months ago, uh, Sharia has been implemented and very forcefully applied. That was in Niger, did you say? Ajay. In? In Indonesia. Indonesia. Indonesia, sorry. In Aceh. In Aceh, yeah. Worth for a journalist to know that fact. Thank you. No, sorry. no, I'm sorry. I couldn't hear through the echo. Ah, sorry. Thanks very much. Uh, and the next question... Thanks. I've had the opportunities to see the elders in action in Rio, in Copenhagen, in many places, and I'd like to thank them for the inspiration they bring to grassroots activists and younger people. However, I want to raise a somewhat controversial issue. Do you think that it's important now for the elders to add the voice to attacking and interrogating the quality of democracy that we actually have in the world? because very many of the countries that claim to be promoters of democracy are actually far too often the underminers of democracy. Uh, the United States today, I would say, is the best democracy money can buy. And the example, that John, the example that John Snow gave about the bankers here in the UK who can engage in billions of dollars of theft and can walk away with bonuses when people to use Jimmy Carter's example, with a joint in the pocket, have to spend time in prison. So should the elders moving forward not begin to actually 
begin to add some qualitative discussion to what is democracy in the current world that we live in. Thank you. Excellent question. Thank you very much. You five up there. Hi. Um, we've heard a lot about women's rights, which is obviously a big issue, but nothing about queer rights. And I was wondering, with such a diverse group of elders, including such religious people, whether LGBTQ plus groups were on your agenda. Did you say gay rights? Gay rights. Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, and a question for Archbishop Joseph Duncan, Tutu Foundation. Um, yeah, question about Ubuntu. Uh, you know, I've, I've personally been immensely inspired by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the idea of you know one family and you know that everybody's everybody else's brother and sister. Uh, but you know the culture that. I find myself living in just seems to be so, you know, pushing me and everybody else towards, uh, you know, punitive, uh, you know, uh, punishing people and splitting people up and putting people into boxes and, you know, working, wanting to promote, you know, the ideas of Ubuntu or community togetherness. It's like, where do we start with culture? You know, where does oppression need to be? Uh, and what can, what can we do as you know, individual citizens, you know, really, to really shift this? What's it going to take? Excellent. And, and the final one up that. I run a project called Think at Vote where we ask people um, from all backgrounds what the future they choose is for the world and how we can create it. I was wondering what um, an act is from each of you of something that we can do as individuals to create the world that we've been talking about tonight. Very good. Do you think it's time that the elders began to interrogate the quality of democracy? Uh, you, you, you've appreciated democracy winning in, in Egypt, but in our questioner suggested there's a lot of people say they're running a wonderfully democratic situation, uh, and as he put it, the United States has the best democracy money can buy. Uh, should the elders be looking at the quality of uh, democracy and... Uh, interrogating it a little, uh, given that it, it is such a yardstick by which you make judgments. Well, he also mentioned Indonesia. Uh, I was there personally when Indonesia had their first democratic election in almost 50 years, following two uh, dictators, and, and it was, a, it was a, an honest and fair election. And we went back five years later for another honest and fair election where the people's voices were heard. And now they have a democracy there that I think is going to be stable. And within that democracy in Aceh and other places, there are problems uh, still existing. But I think that uh, their democracy is good. And uh, I think in Egypt, although we may not like the outcome of the election, uh, this was the expression of the majority of people who went to the polls and voted. And I, and I think that uh, we certainly can look at the quality of, uh, of a democracy. In the United States, with a stupid decision recently made by the Supreme Court that corporations can give unlimited amounts of money, I think it has subverted the basic integrity of our electoral system in America. And, uh, you know, and I think if, you just, if you distill that statement, that one sentence, it's probably one of the most powerful statements a former United States president has ever made. That is a to, to call the Supreme Court decision stupid, is, it, I mean, it was stupid indeed, but, yeah, was, uh, yeah. but to hear it from you is, is well, quite... Maybe, quite maybe, other, maybe other people could think of a better way to describe it, but that, that's my best word that I can think of. <laughs> and, and I, 
because it has subverted the American system and it's made uh, that enormous amount of money coming in be spent almost entirely on negative advertising. Where to win an election now, you destroy the reputation and integrity of your opponent. And that negative attitude has divided our people into two opposing and irreconcilable positions in the Congress and other places. So I think, I think basically democracy is, is by far the best system of government because not only if you make a mistake at the beginning, like they may have made in Egypt or we may have made in the United States, it's self-corrective ultimately. If the people can, can have a, a right to say, okay, we made a mistake, let's correct it in the next election, that's, a, that's the integrity of democracy. So I, I'm, I'm completely convinced that when the people express their will, those who go to the polls and vote and choose a leader, the world ought to recognize that leader chosen by the people as legitimate and ought to cooperate and try to make that leader be successful. Um, do you uh, believe that changing laws can often be more effective than talking to a whole lot of leaders? Um, do you uh, have a message for the next generation? And finally, uh, and you can choose any one of these or perm one of three, message for the next generation, the role of law. If I could just answer the other question, what we can all do, and I think Archie already said this, I, mean, I think we, we do believe as elders that everybody can make a difference and that the world needs people to think in terms of I can make a difference. And it's back to maybe thinking more actively about what, what it is to be a citizen, back to Kumi's question about democracy. But I will take away from... And this, this evening's discussion and what we've heard from the floor is that we need to be thinking more about mm. how we live as good citizens in the 21st century and what we demand of governments. Mm. And there shouldn't be double standards, there shouldn't be the corruption of money. You know, we, and, and above all, as you say, um, the, the, hopefully we will get an arms trade treaty at the end of July, at the end of this month, in fact. Um, uh, Oxfam and others are working very mm. hard on that. And that would be the beginning of sanity when it comes to armaments, which are out of control. I missed one uh, question from your domain, from everybody's domain, gay rights. Yes. Um, well, nobody's been more outspoken on gay rights in African countries than you, Arch. Yes. I, <laughs> I, I'm, I, at the moment, I am sad that in, in our church or our communion, the Anglican Communion, at a time when there is so much poverty and conflict and mm. disease. What are we spending time on? <laughs> spending time on... Is, is this... Okay? I mean, is this kosher or halal uh, uh, for, for, these, for this person to love that person? And... and Coming from where I come, where I was penalized for something about which I could do nothing, my ethnicity, I couldn't possibly keep quiet when people are being persecuted for something about which they can do nothing, basically, they, they, they are um, sexual orientation. And, and I couldn't, I mean, I can't, I can't understand, just as a matter of justice. How can we want to clobber somebody? Uh, we say, well, racism is 
is evil and, and, and all of that. I think homophobia is too. And your message to the next generation? Well, I, I would hope to imitate or to repeat what Archbishop said a few minutes ago. God knows that the future of the world depends on the young people retaining their idealism and their moral values, their hopes and their dreams. And, and if they don't do it, if they, if they submerge themselves into being affected by the mundane aspects of life, how much can I get at the expense of others and so forth, we won't succeed. But I have confidence, optimism, that in the future we'll see a world of peace and human rights. So that's where you come. But, but how to affect the, the lawmakers, that is a big problem that we have to address. We'll do our share as 10 elders, but the vast majority of people in this audience are the ones that are gonna shape the future in my country, in Great Britain, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, all over the world. My friends, uh, we have been in on an intoxicating moment in history. <laughs> Three wonderful minds have been gathered before us, taking our questions and exploring the issues of our day. And they've left us with one message that we should each take out of this room. I can make a difference. And if each of us takes that away, we will leave this room collectively more powerful than we entered it. So I'd like on your behalf to thank President Jimmy Carter, former President Mary Robinson, and Arch Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Very Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. The episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com